In the Name of Overhead Athletics podcast, where we cover rehabilitation, biomechanics, human movement, and optimizing human performance. Welcome back. Today, in the name of Overhead Athletics, we have special guest Dave Tomsich on the podcast. Little introduction on Dave. Dave is the Director of Sports Rehabilitation at the Pistons Performance Center, and he's also Professor of Biomechanics and Human Movement at Wayne State University and at Oakland University in the Doctorate of Physical Therapy programs. He is a physical therapist where he achieved a bachelor's degree in physical therapy from Oakland University, a master's in science and PT from the University of Kentucky, and a doctorate in physical therapy from St. Scholastica University. He has also earned the credential of board certification in sports from the APTA, and he has taken advanced courses in biomechanics and uh, orthopedic manual physical therapy. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Thank you. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Hello. Pretty extensive list there. Did we get it all right? Uh, you did, yes. Okay. <laughs> awesome. So, so your roles have recently changed within the Henry Ford Health System. Could you maybe talk about what your current role is and maybe the facility that you're at? Yeah, so I believe um, in August, uh, I switched uh, to my current title of Director of Sports Rehab for the Henry Ford Health System. In October, we opened up our Center for Athletic Medicine, Pistons Performance Center, uh, opened it up to the public, and uh, was doing, uh, doing great, uh, being busy, and uh, of course, we have a current environment that threw a little wrench into things. Oh yeah. Yeah. The uh, current situation has kind of made things interesting. Are you doing, are you guys doing a lot of things uh, remotely or are you guys just trying to get the facility uh, organized to get up and running? No. So we, uh, we have been fortunate enough to remain open throughout this entire situation. Uh, and uh, currently we are very busy and uh, we're getting ready to open up a number of sites next week. Around the uh, state or? Around the Metro Detroit area, yes. Oh, awesome, awesome. So maybe uh, you could touch on your journey a little bit. Um, we actually had, uh, just for all the listeners out there, Carter and myself had Dave as our biomechanics professor in physical therapy school. And one of the great things about Dave's class was you know, it was very inspirational. He had many motivational uh, pieces intertwined into the uh, human motion analysis stuff. Um, and maybe you could kind of touch on your journey and how you got started um, in biomechanics and in rehabilitation. Sure. So <clears throat> after undergrad in, at Oakland, uh, I worked in a clinic, orthopedic clinic for a couple of years. And uh, decided to uh, move to Kentucky with my college roommate, who was also a PT at the time. And so I kind of actually just, it was so random, I followed him to Kentucky. <laughs> and it was all his plan, all his idea, what he wanted to do. And I just kind of went for the ride. And it was the, uh, the best decision I have ever made. It kind of opened me up to a new uh, area of physical therapy, and that's kind of the biomechanics world, the, the area of movement. And for the first time, I kind of found something within the profession I really loved. And after that, uh, came back to Michigan, uh, worked a number of years uh, in an outpatient uh, sports 
orthopedic clinic and started to integrate some of the things I learned at Kentucky uh, from my biomechanics time in the lab. So I started filming, videotaping. So this is using a video camera, videotaping patients' uh, gait and uh, videotaping sometimes their functional test to try to get a better picture of why they might have the problem that they have, try to hopefully figure out the why part to help get them better. And so that kind of happened in the 90s. So I'm kind of dating myself here. And then in the early 2000s, I started to do some uh, gait lectures uh, at a couple sports medicine conferences that Henry Ford held. And after I did those two lectures, I started getting a lot of referrals for people wanting me to do movement assessments on their patients uh, because they kind of saw, you know, I, at that time it was a little atraditional where, you know, I, we looked, some of us started to look globally. Uh, and how the different parts affect each other, uh, understanding that, uh, that there's a regional interdependence that exists with, within human movement. And uh, some, you know, we have some smart physicians here at Henry Ford and, and elsewhere, and they kind of caught on to that and kind of thought it was a different way of looking at patients. And so I started to get a lot of referrals and uh, that completely kind of changed my career in that that's almost all I do now. Uh, so uh, now at your new facility, you have some uh, very state-of-the-art equipment. You have a semi-3D motion analysis, and you use uh, uh, ground force plates and things like that. Um, maybe you could touch on 2D motion analysis error and how you can, you know, how you're using this uh, 3D motion analysis system. Sure. So we're lucky. We actually have two semi-motion capture labs. We have a running lab with uh, eight high-speed digital cameras uh, with a treadmill that measures pressure. Uh, so we can kind of get a mapping of kind of the foot pressure while they're running on the treadmill with the uh, 3D imaging. And then we have on our second floor, a, another movement lab that also has eight high-speed digital cameras with uh, four Vertec uh, first force plates. Uh, in that room, we do more of the classic, you know, non-running related sport specific testing, jumping, cutting, etc. Mm -hmm. A little bit of gait. So we have those two rooms, which are very fortunate to have. And um, I'm sorry, what was the rest of your question? Uh, 2D motion analysis errors. Carter and I were actually talking about this uh, just before. And um, we were looking back at uh, some things we actually got in your class on 2D motion analysis errors. So maybe if you wanted to uh, touch on how 3D motion analysis can give you a different picture of the movement. Yeah, so, you know, I've done 2D for a long time and have been uh, and eagerly awaiting the arrival of 3D at our work. You know, 2D, there's issues with 2D. Uh, you, you have something called perspective error that occurs. And so if, if the video camera is not perfectly perpendicular to how that person is moving at all their joints, you, you can get some inaccurate information on their kinematics and on how they're moving. And so, you know, for a while there, I was using an iPad, and I still do sometimes. And, you know, you can calculate joint angles and things like that on the iPad. But you have to just you just have to know that there's error with those with those numbers, uh, depending on how that person is moving relative to the position of your iPad in the 2D environment. So, uh, going to 3D has uh, 
you know, helped improve the accuracy of, of the data, uh, which is tremendous. I still, however, like to have a pair of eyes on the mm -hmm. person. And I still like to go through the video visually just because I've used my eyes for such a long time. There's still a little bit of a trust factor there. And I can't just look at data and have a picture of how they're moving. I, ne I need to do both. And then of course, any good 3D, 2D movement assessment has to always be combined with a physical uh, examination to help give you the why of the data or the numbers that you're seeing. Too many times I see the mistake made where you know, a person watches them run and you know, they see a pelvic drop and you know, the, the, the first automatic thought on the cause of that pelvic drop is gonna be weak hip abductors, which could be a reason why their pelvis drops, but in, in many cases there are so many other reasons, uh, impairments that can make that person's pelvic drop you need to be able to put the two together to figure out why you see what you see. And so, I, I, so the physical exam is still a critical element to try to figure out why the person is moving that way. And then Absolutely. to figure out what kind of treatment you're gonna do. Absolutely. Um, and I wanna to touch on one more thing um, here with 3D motion analysis and some of the things that you're looking at even in your 2D uh, motion analysis before Carter jumps in and has some questions about exercise progression. Um, Something that I see a lot in uh, the internet world of uh, training baseball players and um, looking at pitching analysis is people often mistake um, pelvic motion and uh, femur motion and they're thinking that things are external rotation or internal rotation when in fact um, they're ignoring one component which is the relative motion and we know there's five uh, ways in which you could internally rotate the hip or externally rotate the hip um, based on which components moving and which components moving faster. Um, and so is that something that you can see more easily in a 3D motion analysis? And, you know, uh, maybe you could just touch on that and your thoughts on that, because I'm sure you see that all the time in gait analysis and uh, jumping and other things as well. Yeah, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting thing you just asked there. So all you can see with the, with the data is the data. You don't know who's moving on who. So again, having a pair of eyes on the person, looking at the actual video itself can help give you a better pic picture of is this, a, is this a top down driven motion or a bottom up driven motion to try to figure out if there's a relative or, or not a relative rotation. Uh, so, I'm gonna, so I was at a conference one time and uh, uh, it was, it was, the talk was on runners and they were looking at pelvic drop. They were, actually, they weren't even looking at pelvic drop. They were looking at hip adduction. And uh, they were giving numbers on maybe what norms were. And I asked a question, I go, is, is, the, is the number you're giving us uh, the pelvis moving on the femur or the femur moving on the pelvis or a combination of the two? And they couldn't answer it because mm -hmm. they're just looking at the numbers. Gotcha. And to me, I, I wanted to know if it was a pelvic drop causing it or was it the femur going in on the pelvis or a combination of the two because sometimes that might help me figure out again how I might attack that hip adduction problem if it was excessive. Gotcha. And they didn't know because they just look at the number. Gotcha. 
So that's the importance of always having a skilled set of eyes and incorporating, you know, that 2D motion analysis, but always looking, you know, going three dimensionally around the person, even if you have these advanced uh, statistics like, like you have here. And then also your, uh, you know, on table assessment and your movement assessment that you're looking at strength and range of motion of um, various joints and things like that. And that kind of uh, brings us into our next question, Carter, here, if you want before, to. Before we move on to that, just on the 2D motion analysis errors, do you think we were talking from like a clinician's perspective, how important is it for athletes to realize the 2D motion analysis error, either when they're looking at their own video or possibly just watching some professionals on TV and trying to emulate what they do. You know, well, do you think, do you think athletes can get in trouble? You know, where they see one thing on TV, but in reality, something else is happening. I think with it, with any type of movement you look at or participate in, uh, there is a, there is a decent amount of variability in how people you know, get a ball to home plate, right? You know, I'm sure at some phase of the throwing motion, maybe there's a point, okay, right there, things get more consistent. Mm -hmm. That's a point to look at. Maybe you can compare that spot to other people, Absolutely. but sometimes how they get there and where they go after is different. And so and the same thing happens with a lot of the runners I, I, I look at. Uh, you have, I think you have to be careful about trying to create this kind of perfect movement because I'm not sure it exists. There's a large variability. Uh, you know, I was just reading a recent study on, on cadence uh, of uh, 100K athletes, some of the top 25 in the world. Their average cadence of, of, of 12 runners they looked at during a race was 182. Uh, but the variability, it went from like 208 to 165. Ah, gotcha. uh, wow. And so, you know, there's, there's, you just have to know there's individuals. And so, when I read research and I get this normative data, you know, I know the data, but I need to know the person that's in front of me, right? So the person in front of me could have been that 165 cadence, not the 208 cadence. And there's a little bit of difference there. And so I think it's important to, to let people be people, you know, try to enhance or optimize your movement is always good, uh, especially if you see a movement pattern that you think is potentially injurious. Uh, but also have caution and, and uh, be patient and not try to make everybody swing the golf club the same way, right? Exactly. Absolutely. And just I'm to figuring. bring that back home to throwing, you know, if you have somebody like Carter, Carter has cam deformities in his hip and you've, you've actually uh, worked on his hip some. And so having him try to move down the mound or rotate into his hip in the same way that I might have someone that doesn't have that uh, osteophytic uh, adaptation or even somebody that when I see a 12 year old kid that has very weak uh, glute medius, having them rotate or move down the mound in the same way without addressing some of the things uh, that are causing that movement uh, varies. So the way I would have them throw. Um, and that kind of leads us into exercise progression. So um, maybe you could kind of talk about some various ways you may progress exercise and, you know, how you can intertwine specificity based on, you know, either adding resistance or maybe just changing the moment arm and having them work against gravity. 
Sure. So there's, 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 I guess, different ways I might tweak someone's exercise or programs. One way would be I can kind of play with the, with the line of gravity, as you guys know. And uh, if I'm trying to get a little more uh, hamstring activation or glute max activation, then I know if I, if I can just drive that person's trunk and hip into some flexion and get the uh, center of mass more anterior to the axis of rotation of the hip joint, I know I have the potential uh, of, of trying to recruit those muscles a little bit better. And if I wanna get a little more quadriceps activity, I know I can kind of feed out the hip or get the hip uh, less involved uh, by uh, having their trunk a little more vertical and, and, and working the knee with the hip in a little more extended position uh, than a flex position. And so, you know, if I want to get more quad or if I want to test more quad, sometimes I'll have the patient put the test leg or the exercise leg as the, the, the back leg in a stride stance kind of position, kind of a split squat. And uh, I'll have them start from the ground in a split squat position and do uh, a low split squat where they just lift off the ground two, three inches. They have to hold there and then they go back down that. So I have their trunk vertical. I have their hip and kind of, you know, near full extension. And so their hip can't help them. And it puts more load on their anterior knee and their thigh. And so it, it provides a good way for me to kind of, if I take the hip out, how does their knee do? You know, it's still part of a chain. It's still integrated. Right. Uh, but that is a great test I like to do with like post-op ACLs down the road. Mm -hmm. Kind of really see what can their quad do for me. Um, and that would be, you know, different than doing like an anterior lunge and have them reach their arms toward the floor where I drive hip flexion with a neutral spine. And uh, that would kind of help out the quad a little bit, make it a little bit uh, force kind of some of the load to the hip, to the glute, to the hamstring. Uh, so those would be kind of a couple little tweaks I can do by playing with line of gravity and center of mass uh, to, uh, to try to get better activation or, or, or work of certain muscles. You know, sometimes, like let's say I'm doing uh, working with a patient with like a calf strain, right? So gastroc, you know, it's a, do it's a dominant, it's a triplane muscle, but it's a dominant sagittal plane muscle. And so, you know, early on in the acute process, I am not going to create a bunch of exercises that drive sagittal plane calf work, right? So I'm not going to be doing right. a bunch of plantar flexion exercises. I'm going to start up at the hip. And I may start up at you. So I'm going to start away from the joint that's affected and away from the muscle, the tissue. And I may stay in the same plane. So maybe I could do a... a, a, a you know, like a, like a, just a single leg balance arm perturbation in the sagittal plane kind of exercise, or I could, I could dominate the frontal plane uh, and stay out of the sagittal plane initially if I'm too concerned that to, even if I'm kind of dominating the hip in a standing closed chain environment, it's still a little too much load for their calf at this time, then maybe I'll start in the frontal plane and then I'll work my way down to sagittal plane calf. Yeah, and anyone at home could can feel this for themselves. Um, have your center of gravity lean forward over your toes and you can feel your calf kick on a little bit. Um, so adjusting how much of an anterior progression that you do with your trunk or your body can uh, ultimately determine how much your lower extremity or your calf in this case um, has to contract. So that's kind of a little bit of what he's describing here. And then also using some of that um, frontal plane stuff. And I think this is especially germane to looking at 
um, somebody moving in a lateral acceleration or anyone moving in a sagittal plane um, as well when we talk about the quadriceps and we talk about the glute muscles. So, you know, give this, uh, give that split stance uh, a try and then try to do the same thing with your trunk flexed forward and feel the difference and feel what muscles are turned on and you can kind of get a picture of what uh, Dave's talking about here. So, another question. Another yeah, question ahead. I had, another question I had, Dave, and this is a little, this is more related probably to populations of me and Max who have had some hip, uh, some hip issues in the past, but I thought I was having was when, when a pitcher's driving down the mound, if they have some FAI like I do, where I'm limited in the flexion and internal rotation, as you said, keeping them more, keeping their, their trunk more upright might allow them to access a little bit more of a load as they go down the mound in their back right hip does that does that sound about right so that's so uh you're talking about the the leg trailing them yes not, not the follow-through leg not the 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 drive well, leg yep drive leg put on the mound drive leg put on the mound yeah so you know for someone like me it who can't load into their hip that much anyway in deflection internal rotation it might be better to keep more of an upright trunk as i go down the mound and load you is you know, and you talked about that with progressing or regressing that exercise. Yeah. So, our, our, if you're suggesting that if you lean your trunk more forward as you're driving off that leg, that would drive more flexion. And if you don't have the flexion necessary for that, you might get into a little trouble. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. So I, you know, when when hips are hip mobility is is critical for many of the tasks we do many of the sports we play right and many of the patients that i see have hip mobility restrictions uh, sometimes it's in every direction and sometimes it, it might be in just one but i think it's critical that a person's hip can go through two key uh, global motions they need to be able to absorb in their hip and every other joint uh, so for your for your for your drive leg, you know you need to first be able to load right inflection, adduction, internal rotation. And if you have FAI, those are the three motions you that's harder to move into. Um, you know it's it's probably a little bit better that you know when you head up into your windup, you know you're normally a, normally I guess a little more vertical, right? Uh, but then you need to be able to transform those three motions into extension, abduction, external rotation. And, and sometimes with the FAI, they, I mean, I've seen issues with both where they, not only do they have a little bit of issue with flexion, not, they also have an issue with extension. And uh, if you force their extension too much, you irritate their hips. Um, so, you know, I think as you're designing exercises and you're, and, you're, and you're trying to think about changing, if you're thinking about tweaking their form for their activity, Right, you need to stay within their, the confines of where they're successful, right? And you're not trying to, you're not trying to, obviously we wanna expand their thresholds, their ability to move, right? But we wanna make sure that we're not driving emotion beyond their capabilities because then it's gonna to lead to some kind of compensatory motion and oftentimes something else gets beat up, right? Absolutely, and injury is the opposite of successful. Yes. <laughs> and we also have to keep in mind, you know, on this thing, something I was thinking about is if we do put them more in extension, we're going to make them more quad dominant at that part in the throw rather than um, 
you know, using their gluteal muscles, their glute max or their posterior glute meds. So these are all things that, you know, as you're looking at movement for all the listeners, these are things you're, you're keeping in mind. Um, going on from that, uh, you know, we see a lot of tendinopathy, uh, a little bit less tendinitis, and I'm sure you see a lot of tenosynovitis and a lot of tendinosis. And maybe you could just touch on um, some of your thoughts um, as you give exercises for these patients, and then you know how you might incorporate uh, you know different types of exercises when you see some sort of tendinopathy. Yeah, tendinopathies are they're interesting and they're they are challenging. You know, especially. A patellar tendinopathy and Achilles tendinopathy, those are the ones I see the most. And, uh, you know, any kind of tendinopathy is a challenge. I, I, I kind of approach it two ways. The first way, and it's the way I will approach every single patient, is I'm trying to figure out why that tissue got lo you know, loaded excessively. Most injuries are due to excessive loading. Why it got loaded excessively in the first place. And so for me, that's, that's I'm trying to identify how they move and why they move that way to try to figure out why they got stressed at their Achilles tendon, for example. So there's always gonna be that, that approach that tries to attack the causes. Then I'm also gonna maybe do some tendon capacity training, right? Trying to get that tendon stronger. Mm -hmm. you know, most of the patients that I see, they're, they're, they're in the tendinosis category. So they have some degeneration of that uh, tendon occurring. Uh, their, their rope is getting thinner and weaker, right? Uh, and so I will, I will do some training that will involve some local tendon capacity training. I tend, especially if it's acute, I tend to start isometric. And so there's been more, you know, more data the last few years about high intensity, um, high, maximal isometric training for 30 to 60 seconds, you know, one to three reps, three to five sets. You know, people, people vary on kind of the, the quantity or the intensity of everything but I will tend to start there. I tend to stretch tendons, uh, muscle tendon units. I try not to go through the tendon sometimes, so sometimes I completely avoid stretching through the tendon and instead might go to more of attacking the muscle, whether that's with you know, tools or you know, my hands, foam roll for the patient and, and kind of laying off the tendon. Some, some tendinopathies get irritated if you start stretching them too much. It's like a proximal hamstring one, which I see a lot in runners. And then, you know, so there's a component of trying to attack the, the causes. There's a, a component of trying to maybe improve tendon capacity. And then I'll, you know, progress from isometric to then more concentric, eccentric training. You know, sometimes I'll do the, just the eccentric phase uh, separately. But, I, you know, I've, I've seen enough stuff in the literature lately that, you know, I think it's important, you know, how people move, they need to load and unload. They need to move into absorption mm -hmm. and go into propulsion. So I don't really like trying to train a, a contraction type. I like to try to train build okay. capacity in the tendon and the whole muscle, the way it should work. Um, and then hopefully if I'm ad addressing the causes of the problem, that that will also help take off that kind of uh, load off the tissue while I try to increase the, the strength of the tendon itself. So I guess that's my tendinopathy kind of strategy. Yeah, absolutely. That was awesome. Um, and then if we could circle back to motion analysis, something that uh, we see that's pretty popular now is people are using accelerometers and uh, accelerometers that have gyroscopes. 
And a lot of these times, a lot of the times they extrapolate quite a bit of information from just one accelerometer placed on uh, an extremity. Um, You know, how would you fit that into your analysis or how would you use something like that um, in combination with the other assessments that you that you do on a daily basis? You know, I have not used accelerometer since my days at Kentucky, so it's been a long, long time. so, you know, I'm not sure I can answer that question for you. <laughs> so, just for all the for all the listeners out there, like what we're talking about, at least in the baseball world, is like a, a compression sleeve that would basically go over your a joint, like your elbow, and it has a sensory um, chip in there that you know records some data. And uh, you know, in they. They say they can find, you know, the acceleration of your arm, uh, peak torque valgus stress on your elbow, the arm slot, et cetera. Um, Do you see this, you know, having a place, not just in baseball, but maybe, you know, rehab in sports as we go forward? Or do you feel like 3D motion analysis, you know, might get a little cheaper and more available to people out there? So for the accelerator, you know, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go into a different sport. I'm going to go into running. And so sensors, attaching sensors to shoes and different body parts has become much more popular over the last few years. And if they can get you some accurate data, well, it's, it's always nice to have more data than less data, right? But there is a problem with a lot of these commercial sensors. They're not accurate they're not giving you good data. And so um, it's, it's all about the accuracy. So uh, you guys would know way more about the accelerometers on elbows than I would. Uh, I have no idea what the accuracy of those are, but I can tell you uh, many of the sensors used uh, commercially in the running world uh, have some accuracy issues. And uh, I won't say his name, but one of our key lab guys here, our key value mechanist, um, uh, kind of always uh, seems to laugh when I talk about uh, sensors attached to the body and uh, that you can buy commercially. So he doesn't think any of them are accurate. Yeah, and they, there's problems, absolutely. They move around. And the problem that, that uh, we kind of see in some of the baseball ones is they have one accelerometer and they're extrapolating tons of data based on one accelerometer in one um, remote location. And so, uh, you know, we have a guy here who does 3D motion analysis and who understands, um, you know, what the joints are doing because he's taken them through an assessment and taken them through uh, passive range of motion, active range of motion, manual muscle testing, and then his functional tests as well. Um, And so, you know, I think, uh, I guess kind of where I was thinking uh, to lead with this question is kind of, it's all important, but we got to have that uh, functional assessment, understand how the per- the person's uh, capacity to move, um, and then kind of look at how they actually are moving. Are they, you know, is it a learned you know, or acquired movement or is this, um, you know, how they have to move based on um, their physical limitations or physical abilities? Yeah, that's a good point. So as you were, the two of you were talking there, I kind of thought of something in my head. So when I was at Kentucky, we used to put accelerometers up at the hip to try to measure the force coming up the chain, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you think about, well, why would there be a lot of force up at the hip? 
Well, someone could be running and, and maybe they don't dorsiflex properly through their telocrural joint and therefore they don't shock attenuate as well and, and load moves up the chain. Another person might not flex or absorb right through their knee, right? And same thing, they have a, a, a knee stiffening strategy uh, that also sends force up to the chain. And so the accelerometer doesn't know in those two patients why the force is higher. It just knows the force is higher in the two. And if you're going to treat somebody or try to get them to move better or to lower the, the load in the elbow or lower the load in their hip, you need to know why the load, what are the causes of the elevated load? So let's say they were all accurate. Well, I can get a, I can get a number, but the number still doesn't give me the complete picture of why that load is high. And just like you guys are saying, it's, it's putting it all together. Um, to try to figure out the why the number is higher, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Carter, do you want to take them through our, our last question here? I need an easy one, guys, okay? All right. All right. Max, I think you wrote it down, didn't okay, you? Okay, I'll do it. Um, so maybe you could give one piece of advice um, or one thing that's helped you on your journey that could help and you could give us two, one for athletes and one for clinicians or uh, one overarching principle or uh, thought that you have that could help people out there. Helping clinicians or people injured? Uh, anyone. How about that? Just one thing. You know, uh, I know that you had a bunch of great little zingers and theories as we went through your class on motivation or, you know, thought processes. If you could give us one thing. I, get, I did. I saved the hardest one for last. Yeah. yeah. You know, athletes, athletes trying to get better, you know, just as clinicians try to get better and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, I guess for me, it's, it's always about why. Why did the athlete get injured? What, what are the impairments that, you know, if it's not traumatic or it's obvious, obviously, if it's more overuse, uh, you know, why do they have their problem? And just understanding that different athletes, different people can get the same problem for different reasons. Um, so, you know, you get a tibialis posterior tendinopathy, usually because you pronate too much. Okay, so that would be the one commonality among 10 patients that have that problem. Then as the clinician, the job is to try to figure out why each of those 10 people got that same problem. What impairments unique to them cause that problem to kind of come to the surface. Uh, and I think for me, trying to figure out the why has been helpful. And even though it's I think it's a more difficult path to go on. It's more difficult. Uh, you know, you have, to, you have to do a lot more in your evaluations. You have to think more. You have to be prepared before you see your, your client. Uh, figuring out the why has been the best thing for me. And even though it can be more difficult, it's a fun journey trying to figure out the why. You know, especially if you like to solve problems, right? If you like to solve mysteries, uh, that's the best. And, and, and kind of, you know, taking, you know, what the literature gives you, as well as, you know, the things you guys are going to learn over time, seeing patients like you are and getting better each day, each month, each year. You're going to figure some things out, which you probably already have on your own and apply it to, 
you know, what you're seeing in the, in the literature or, or sometimes, you know, some, some things I see in the literature, I'm thinking that's, that's, that's not what I've seen clinically. Right. right. I like that. That's awesome. And uh, I just want to thank you, Dave, for coming on. Um, I think that, and I've told people that I wish everybody that went into human movement and physical therapy and any rehabilitation or sports performance field should have the opportunity to learn from you. Um, so I think Carter feels the same way there. That was, you know, your class was uh, monumental for us. So I appreciate you coming on the podcast and giving everyone who's going to listen to this the opportunity to uh, learn from you. Well, uh, thank you. You know, you guys, the two of you have been very fortunate, obviously, to, to have a, a mentor like Ed Martell, right, uh, that you guys have learned from. I'm sure there's others. And uh, I'm, I'm pleased to hear that you enjoyed my class uh, and, and the topic. But as you understand, uh, you know, I have been influenced by many people, too. You know, back in when I was at Kentucky, uh, not only was that a, a, an eye-opening experience for me, but it was at the time I actually discovered Gary Gray, who got me to think 3D, multi-joint, uh, which was kind of contrary to what I learned in PT school at the time. So I've had a lot of uh, people that have inspired me to help me get where I am. So uh, a lot of what you see from me is, is a blend of a lot of other people. Well, you've been uh, an inspiration to us, and I know many People, uh, in fact, probably most of the people, if not all of the people who have taken uh, your course in the past. So once again, thank you for coming on. And in the name of Overhead Athletics, this is Carter Kowalczyk. And Max Wardell, signing, signing off. off.